If Hegel was right, we all would have come through COVID and be like, oh my God, the universal. We need the universal. And we would have... But, we would have been educated into Marx's the universal, point, as he puts it. Yeah, but that... But that if Marx is right, then we all come through COVID still wondering why, like, planes are late and why, you know, stuff isn't showing up. For today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Jason Reed. Hey, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so Jason is professor at the University of Southern Maine, and for a number of years now, he's been one of our most prominent and exciting Marxist philosophers. His first book was The Micropolitics of Capital, Marx and the Prehistory of the Present, where he began his exploration of Marxist political thought in light of the critical investigation into subjectivity found in Spinozistic continental philosophers like Louis Althusser, Deleuze and Guattari, and Antonio Negri. More recently, he's been interested in the notion of trans-individuality, as in his 2015 book, The Politics of Trans-Individuality, and his new book, just out with Brill, soon to be out with Haymarket, The Production of Subjectivity, Marx and Philosophy. For today's discussion, we've read a few chapters from this newest book. The idea of trans-individuality comes initially from the work of Gilbert Simondon, an early 20th century philosopher whose research focused on individuation. Instead of taking individuals for granted as a kind of basic ontological unit, Simondon argued that processes of individuation are more fundamental, which give rise to individuals as phases or states along the way but in which those individuals serve neither as an origin or an end. This perspective changes considerably the way we understand a number of metaphysical problems, especially the question of the relationship between the individual and collectivities. And then for the past few decades, Etienne Balibar has adopted this perspective in his own philosophical work, drawing more explicitly political consequences from this idea of trans-individuality. It is in this lineage that Jason situates his own research. Balibar and Reed identify a small undercurrent of philosophers of trans-individuality within the Western canon, Spinoza, Hegel, Marx, and sometimes Freud. What distinguishes them from others in this tradition is that, like Simondon, they do not take the individual to be a discrete and ontologically primary unit. However, Balibar and Reed argue they've often been misunderstood as making something like the opposite mistake, namely positing the social totality, whether that's substance, spirit, or capital, as absolutely primary in such a way that the individual then loses all sense and coherence. Rather, we should understand them as trans-individual thinkers who refuse both the individualism of liberal thought and the organicism or holism of the communitarian alternative, instead developing a consistent conception of individuality as always collective and collectivity as always individuated and individuating. In one formulation I found particularly memorable, Jason writes that the thought of trans-individuality involves two theses, that of an irreducible minimum of individuation at the heart of any collective process, and that of an irreducible minimum of the collective in any individual. Adopting this perspective has, as Jason's work shows, a number of striking theoretical consequences, many of which are notable for how they avoid the aporias of more traditional political thought, and he draws them all out in remarkable detail in the book. I wanna bring up just three of them here in what remains of this brief introduction. So first, this allows us to reconceptualize subjectivity, a theme that, as already mentioned, has run throughout the whole of Jason's work. The book, of course, is entitled The Production of Subjectivity, and this is, in and of itself, a concept of trans-individuality. It should be heard in both senses, the social process by which subjectivity is produced and the way in which subjectivity is productive, the production of subjectivity. 
This becomes then a concept with which to understand processes of social individuation and individuated activity, a way to think about conditioned agency that cuts across the traditional divide between base and superstructure. And as always in Jason's work, this thought is closely connected to questions about a possible subject of politics. Second, this approach to individuation and subjectivity enables Jason, following Paolo Virno, to rethink several core concepts of Marxist thought. There are some fascinating discussions in the book about reification, alienation, and fetishism, which take on new senses from the trans-individual perspective. Similarly, notions like the commons and of primitive accumulation seem to become more central to the analysis of capitalism than we get in some other versions of Marxist critical social theory. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about all of this, uh, hopefully in discussion. And then finally, there's a substantial engagement with the concept, also elaborated by Balibar, of equal liberty, which Jason presents as doing in the political register what trans-individuality does in the metaphysical, cutting across familiar binaries by positing the irreducibility of both individuality and collectivity to one another. In more traditional political thought, it's usually taken for granted that equality and liberty are opposed to one another somehow. Freedom is possible only on the basis of some posited inequality. And on the other hand, equality is established only by a restriction of freedom. The notion of equal liberty explicitly refuses this dichotomy. But for this reason, it's also a seemingly unstable notion. And Jason productively mobilizes it in his analysis of some ongoing political struggles. So as you can tell, the work is extremely rich and I've only sketched out a few of the directions that Jason goes in it. We've got trans-individuality, the production of subjectivity, Marxian notions like alienation and fetishism, and equal liberty. So I've got some specific questions that I'd like to ask, and I'm sure the others do too, but perhaps I could ask you to start by saying a bit about how and why you came to develop this perspective, uh, what political or philosophical questions drew you to working on these concepts, and if you'd like to take up any of the threads that I've uh, sketched out here. Sure, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think I was struck when I first heard the formulation of trans-individuality. It seemed incredibly suggestive and productive. And I was also somewhat struck by the way in which it seemed to be operating in different philosophical uh, places and with different philosophers working at it as kind of a not quite shared perspective because people like uh, Balibar and, and Virno, who you mentioned, and also like Bernard Stiegler are working from very different philosophical traditions, but they all felt it necessary to sort of come to this idea and had different understandings. And so I sort of was drawn to both its its productivity and its sort of, its like polyvalence, the way it had different senses in different philosophers' works, but it seemed to me that it, it got at something which is incredibly important, that the, the binary that it seeks to overcome, the binary between, say, thinking in terms of the individual as both like a methodological as well as a political and moral-like position, and the collective as a, as a methodological position, it seemed that the binary that it seemed to overcome was a necessary binary to overcome for critical thinking and for politics. Um, and then I was also drawn by the way in which I think, like all philosophical concepts, it produces ways of looking at you know things in the present, but it also, in terms of politics and so on, but it also produces ways of rereading other philosophers and to see the way in which this problem or a, a version of this problem, unnamed as such, might be at work in people like Spinoza or Marx and, and so on. So it just seemed like both necessary and suggestive all at once. So, you know, I tried to sort of work through it. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, I really loved what, what you were, you're doing with trans individuality. In particular, um, I thought what was fascinating was um, how it reorganizes how we understand alienation. And so if, you know, the, the let's say the ontological argument of trans individuality obtains, which is, I take it in the way that I'm thinking about it is something like the individual doesn't exist prior to society and, you know, society 
society isn't simply the liquidation of the individual, but actually we share these affects, these languages, these cultures, these political institutions, and it's only through those that something like an individual is composed. And so the individual is always in relation with you know, others, with you know, other practices, etc. And so alienation is no longer how did I lose myself? You know, that would mm -hmm. make sense if something like the individual kind of preceded the social. In fact, what alienation becomes is how I have lost the very grounds of my own possibility. How I am, no, um, I think the way that, that you put it is the loss of objectivity for the subject, the loss of the relation to its conditions. So I, I wanted to ask you, um, how do you see this, you know, this reformulation of alienation? How does it affect you know, how we um, consider the subject ontologically, but also how might it affect how we think about political practice? Like, so does, is there a certain type of political practice that emerges if we think of alienation as how did I lose myself versus how did I lose your know, objectivity or the very conditions for me to be a self? And like, I think likewise with reification and exploitation, I feel like these other kind of key concepts in Marx, like I have the same question Will just asked about all of them. I thought that part was really interesting in your book. Yeah, well, taking the first one, I mean, alienation, um, which is, you know, a concept that has come under a lot of criticism, you know, for, for a while now. And I think part of the criticism is because, uh, and the way in which it's sometimes, you know, as you were saying, well, the way in which it's sometimes invoked, it suggests that the opposite of alienation would be some, you know, fully self-possessed subject, which seems to be a problem both philosophically and politically. And in some sense, this idea is almost flipping the definition of alienation, that, that, that the, the sort of detached pure subject, you know, very, uh, the, the opening lines of, you know, Marx's 1857 introduction, you know, the introduction that's uh, attached to the Grundriss, the where he talks about how it's only in bourgeois civil society that you get this individual that is that sees itself as fully autonomous and independent. Uh, it seemed to me that that is more interesting and productive rather than think alienation a loss of self, but alienation is a loss of objectivity. One way to put it, one way I put it, but also like relationality in general, the sort of sense that that one only exists in and through one's connection to the world. That I mean, that what capital does is it doesn't so much deprive individuals of subjectivity; it reduces them to a pure abstract subjectivity, that of labor power. And that's the alienation, to be nothing other than labor power, to have no connections to the world, both natural and social, other than what one can gain through one's selling of one's abstract potential is, in this, in this view, alienation. So, you know, I think to some sense, you know, I'm always drawn towards, as a Marxist philosopher, I always see Marxist philosophy as an incredibly, you know, problematic path. To, to take in the sense that it is always a matter of sort of taking these Marxist concepts and wrestling with the way in which Marx himself was not interested in sort of formulating their full philosophical implications, or there are multiple different readings of them, and to some extent they are concepts, because they're tied up to the critique of capital, they're concepts which must necessarily be reinscribed and, and, and reinterpreted as capital itself changes. And so they're both kind of necessary, but also need constant revision, in my view. And I would say that about every, you know, alienation, I would say that about ideologies, exploitation, a constant need to return to them and think, what do these concepts mean for us now, given the current state of, of capital and given the current political and economic situation we're living in? Yeah, I had an interesting question about that. So you say at some point you're, I think you're talking about Stiegler and there's a kind of two-sided character to what we want to call the proletariat or working class in capitalism. On the one hand, it's like the highest degree of like integration and unification and, you know, collective cooperative labor is an organized form. This is like the development of capital, but also like increasing fragmentation and disunity and isolation at the same time. And you suggest that, you know, this might be understood as a historical development, that this is like a new phase of the transformation of labor and capitalism. But it also was, if Balibar is right, if you're right about this, 
always true of capitalism mm -hmm. um, on Marx's analysis. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. This is interesting because I think a lot of people who read Marx take the historical suggestion more seriously that once upon a time, maybe in the mid 1800s, there was like a unifying movement of capital vis-a-vis -vis workers and now it's dispersal or fragmentation. And I think it's interesting to suggest that both of these were always already true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, not to get too like intellectual biographical about it, but like I, I at a certain point, like, like theses around like post operismo stuff was very influential for me. And that was a heavily dependent on a very periodizing way of understanding capital. Like something new is happening with capital. Now it's exploiting, not just our capacities as bodies, but also our minds and our social relations, you know, sort of argument you find in people like Negri and, and Hart and Negri and so on. And then I, I, I guess I became very skeptical of that in the sense that, it seemed useful to think about the way in which you can't really talk. And the, the, the line from that I quote in the one piece, you know, from Marx on cooperation, where he talks about, you know, cooperation exploiting the species capacity, that mm. to some extent, every exploitation of labor is always already social. There is no, um, and this goes into part of the notion of trans individuality in the sense that even if I am, you know, like working, you know, like on my own, you know, I'm utilizing skills, knowledge, ways of working that themselves are not done originate with me and are part of a social process. So even if you're kind of like working some isolated, you know, at, at home in your own little, you know, your little tiny loom or whatever in some piecemeal work system, <laughs> you are still working with ways of relating to the world and acting that are themselves um, social and, and, and produced. So there is no, the division that I think some people really rely on, the division between uh, a sort of abstract labor as just sort of bodies and abstract labor as now minds and social relations mm -hmm. is not a division that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, nonetheless, I do think it makes sense to still think in terms of, of periods and shifts, but, but not in terms of radical breaks. I think it, it makes more sense to think in terms of tendencies rather than thinking in terms of suddenly something new is happening with exploitation that has never happened before. So I, I think this is, this to me just seems like one of, this is one of my moments on the podcast where I just think this, what you're saying is sort of obviously true. And I'd, and I'd like to know like what trans individuality helps us clarify, because this is my first time really reading about this concept. So um, mm -hmm. I I find myself thinking that what you are saying, again, is basically true, that there's something wrong with a way of doing social analysis that starts from whether you want to call it dialectics or kind of social processes, and you're trying to work out um, their developmental logic. And then over the course of time, at least in the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the first, suddenly we're all like not really talking about the processes. We're just like being very impressionistic about like the result that has happened. We're like, oh, wow, we're just doing things so differently now than we were mm -hmm. 15 years ago. Let's give it a new name and mm -hmm. a new stage. And <laughs> mm -hmm. then we're going to write books with these prefixes. And um, I hope this, this might offend a chunk of our listeners, but like, I just think this is like the worst waste of time. And, and it, there, it mean it like what it means is that there's something about the processes that is not actually being understood. Um, that's what it signals to me. And there's like this kind of craving of novelty in the analysis that doesn't uh, mm -hmm. appeal to me. And I'm much more attracted to the kind of effort you're making to try to see how to rethink concepts in such a way that we can actually make sense of continuity more than we can uh, breaks. I, I, I like that. I'm like bought into that kind of project. What I'm not quite sure about is like how trans individuality is helping you to conceptualize processes, whether in general, like at a more abstract level or at the part particular processes that kind of attached to those Marxian concepts that kind of allow you to like get inside the way human subjects are formed and the way that the system develops. Um, Cause it seems to me like that's, 
if I'm, unless I'm misunderstanding, that's like what mm-hmm. is part of what, you know, what you're able to do. And so, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, who are the thinkers that help you? What are the resources? Like, either it's Hegel or Marx or Bellybar, these kind of figures, Spinoza, like, what's allowing you to, like, kind of flesh out this alternative called uh, trans individuality? Yeah, well, one of the things that I try to do is argue that that I'm trying to articulate what I see as a critical theory of trans individuality in the sense that, and one of the defining characteristics of that critical theory comes back from that that passage that I just referred to earlier from from Marx, in the sense that one of the things I take as basic to Marx's uh, critical perspective, and this is also something I I find in Spinoza, is that when Marx confronts something like, you know, famously in the German ideology, the notion that, you know, ideas drive and determine history, Marx doesn't just say this is false, this is wrong. He says, I'm going to show you the historical process by which this false, or to put it in Spinoza's terms, inadequate idea comes into being. I'm going to tell you why people think this, mm-hmm. right? In a similar way, I would argue that the the perspective, which is in some sense predominant of thinking in terms of isolated and separate individuals, is not only incorrect, but has to be understood as itself a product from, a product of capitalist social relations. And that the the critical perspective is about not just, you know, to juxtaposing the the what I think is true to the false, but showing how transindividual relations can produce in a kind of you know inverted mirror image vision, vision of the world produce their own uh, sense of isolation, right? And then one of the things I talk about in the one chapter that you all read is the the phrase the increasing commodification of the pre-individual and the increasing exploitation of the trans individual. So here I am going to be a little bit, I know I kind of criticized historicizing perspectives a bit ago, well, like seconds ago, um, but, <laughs> but I'm going to sort of say that, that I do think there's something to that tendency in the sense that, that the very things that make up the basis of our existence come to us in a commodified form, right? That the wealth of capitalist societies confronts us as an immense accumulation of commodities. And that part of that, what that means is that we don't really, uh, we're affected by things without really being able to understand the ways in which they affect us, right? I mean, that, I mean, this is, this is just kind of a basic thing of the way I understand like commodity production and commodity sales is that the whole world we live in is one in which we, associate different ideas like this thing is cool this thing is hot this thing is uncool and we have no real understanding of where those associations come to because they're producing us by a whole series of of different uh relations that function by being obscured right the sort of virno's idea of a kind of black box right we don't see the conditions of our own individuation and and, and there is a version of this you know in in someone like stigler who i think has some points i'm, I'm not entirely you know stigler really thinks that like for him, we've completely lost the conditions of our own individuation, right? Because for Stigler, like Stigler really juxtaposes, like, you know, to learn how to read is to learn how to write, right? And for a long time, a lot of things that we learned in our society had that kind of reciprocity to them, right? To learn how to passively be affected by something is to learn also how to actively produce mm. it. And Stigler thinks that this just doesn't happen anymore, um, although I feel like Stigler's never seen, well, he's uh, unfortunately passed away recently, not, not so recently, but like he had never seen like YouTube or TikTok because people. <laughs> Don't speak ill of the dead. He, never seen YouTube. People, people, I mean, like the way in which, or never seen a meme, like because a meme is in some sense like people taking things that have affected them, like a pivotal scene or, or, or whatever, or an image, and messing around with it and tooling with it. So I don't think that the condition we've lost, we've been alienated from our pre-individual conditions in a sort of Stiglerian way where like once we went from writing to visuals, we were just passive, we're just passive products of consumer society (laughs) now. I do think that there is a way in which, and this is where I'm more Spinozist, like we, we always struggle to maintain our activity, even in conditions which entirely dis- deprive us of any meaningful activity. So I'm not, I'm not really saying that like 
fooling around with memes is like, you know, a liberatory practice. It is in some sense is an incredibly like truncated and limited process, but it shows to what extent we are always trying to get to the side of you know, as I say, mm. the production of subjectivity is two senses. We are both produced and we are constantly trying to produce things, even if the conditions of that production are very much out of our hands and there's very little we can do and we just find ourselves, you know, producing different ways to, like, make the the timeline less doom-scrolling. Uh, that still is yeah. a kind of production. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I just want to say real quick that, like, also what I heard there, and um, I know people like William Claire Roberts are, are thinking this way, um, yeah, agency does exist. We are not, you know, completely determined. It is not as if, especially according to the thesis of trans individuality, as if we are pure effects and we are not also producing effects. But that is far and away, uh, you know, from describing something like freedom or liberation. And so sometimes, you know, I, I like that you say it's not as if like memes will set us free. All you're <laughs> saying there is that what trans individuality tells us is that there isn't any sort of univocal causality as if you know there's simply economic compulsion and people just like are dictated by it but that, al that also doesn't answer the question of freedom simply to say that it turns out you know subjectivity is produced but also produces and so I thought that, that was like a really nice point because I think sometimes you know we talk a lot about agency but agency doesn't necessarily tell us much about freedom agency almost seems to be just like you know the the ontological condition for there to be a world mm-hmm yeah, your your response there, Jason, helped me understand the notion of like the wanting to do a critical theory of trans individuality was very helpful for me in terms of making sense of what I really like about this project alongside the politics of trans individuality, which is also, I think, obviously connected, but a bit of a separate thing. Uh, because I think that there, if you look at, I don't know, kind of late 20th century thinkers that you could call or classify as kind of trans-individual thinkers, someone like Jean-Luc Nancy, right? There was this like mm -hmm, left mm -hmm. Heideggerian movement to really emphasize like the mit-sein or being with or mit-dasein mm -hmm. in Heidegger and that we're actually, like, you know, uh, this atomization that we live and that we think in <laughs> is actually like, you know, it's false and underneath it is the real true interconnect, reticulated network of interconnected beings that we are or whatever. And I've said this before, but my answer to that is always like, okay, but like, why, then why aren't we, like, why are we atomized then? Like, if that's the real <laughs> ontological truth of what we are, is we're trans individual. Yeah. Then why, why can't we get it? Then why do we live yeah. as like, just like totally commodified, serialized, isolated, atomized, you know, individuals? And that answer isn't in there because... <laughs> because we're being inauthentic. Because we're being inauthentic, being right? Inauthentic. We have an inauthentic society <laughs> now instead of an inauthentic individual, right? And so like... I, I really, really appreciate this because you're, what you do in this book, at least on the critical side, right? Because there you're saying like, no, no, there are the reason is like this whole network of ha this historically determined network of habits, of technologies, of modes, the mode of production. And then not just saying the mode of production, but like specific aspects of the way that the mode of the capitalist mode of production relate relates us one to one to another and individuates us and all that. So. I just want to say that I really like that a critical theory of trans uh, of trans individuality and how it and what I think it brings that is different from, uh, you know, other, let's say, I, I don't know, more wishy washy, less more ahistorical. Right versions of that, uh, of trans individuality. So, Owen's trying to be so okay, sorry, nice no, but, here. So I, my question though is about the <laughs> politics part. If I could just, oh, did you want to say something? Yeah. No, no. Well, what I was going to say is, is maybe a little bit cringe because this is one of the things I love about your guys show is when you, when you bitch about grad school. Cause I feel like even though, <laughs> even though, even though I'm, I'm older, it's not, I'm not the same generation, but these trends, man, do they last a long, like, yeah. like talking about like, 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 like yeah. mid signs going to save us. Like, I was there for that too. Yeah. I caught the very um, tail end oh, of it no. when I began my master's degree. The very tail end of it, it still had you know waning hegemony. The long durée is real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just think of it. I think of it as a struggle of, of being materialist in a continental world, right? That's yes. that's to some extent what I think. Yeah, <laughs> and and then the other part of it is there's also another struggle, which is being being politically attuned in a continental in the continental world which is another, the other part of it that i want this where i have quite a right, question right. for you is that yeah. it's not just a critical theory of trans individuality it's a political theory of trans individuality and these are my okay maybe i'm not, I'm not supposed to be this glowing but you know these are my favorite kinds of texts right where there's a there's an element of critical social theory and 
intertwined with it is a political tract, right? A sense of what mm -hmm. kinds of praxis, you know, avenues of praxis that are suggested by the social theory, like in, in question. So like, so you, the way you develop the kind of politics of um, trans individuality, at least in what we read, it's um, you, you use, you, you do it with reference to Balibar's notion of equal liberty, right? Um, the mm -hmm. notion of the trans individual, what it wins you in the political sphere is, you know, a, an ability to see the illusory nature of any, you know, distinction between liberty and equality, you know, the liberty of individuals and the equality of like of society or social equality or something. You don't see those as, as opposed. And so uh, historical praxis, Balibar gives the example of the French Revolution, which he thinks is as much about economic equality as it is about as it is about political liberty. Uh, whether we agree with that or not, that's the example. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I wanted yes, to ask yes. more, and it might be that it's it's only because we read parts of the text, but I wanted to ask you more, like, is equal liberty for you, That's is that paradigmatic of what the politics of trans individuality looks like? Or, I don't know, could it be kind of subsumed under a, a larger set of, of political phenomena or way of understanding movements um, in general that, I guess, outstrips or goes beyond just the kind of equal liberty concept specifically? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, want to say about that is that one of the things that interests me and at first I was very curious about it as to why I mean as, as we've sort of been talking about that 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 trans individuality and, and equal liberty kind of traverse the same terrain right um, but why not only why did, did does Balibar use these two separate terms but not only does he use these two separate terms he gives entirely different genesis for both of the terms right he says I mean for trans individuality it's very much a kind of question of a certain kind of, you know, ontology, metaphysics, whatever you want to call it. Um, but whenever he talks about equilibrity, he always derives it from looking at politics, looking at history, you know, basically saying, look, I mean, he, it's a strange proposition. He says, look, contrary to what we said, there is no, there is no suppression of equality, which is also not a separation, a suppression of liberty, and there is no suppression of liberty, which is not a uh, suppression of uh, of equality, right? That, that, that uh, once again, this is a similarity to transidentality. There, there's no zero-sum game here, right? There's no zero-sum game between the individual and society. There's no zero-sum game between liberty and equality, despite what a lot of political theory would have you say. So I think one of the interesting things about the use of a different term there is that I think that that this goes against the sort of attempts, you know, we were joking about a few minutes ago, not just the Mitzayn stuff, but the, some of the attempts like, you know, someone like Negri on Spinoza, who really thinks that you can directly derive a politics from an ontology, mm -hmm. right? Who can mm -hmm. say, like, I mean, that we exist trans-individually, like, we're relational, these are kind of ontological things, that, and I, I think this is, I, I agree, I mean, I agree that that's, an ontology I'm totally on board with, like what exists are relations and individuation can only be understood in terms of relations and so on. All that I agree with, but I don't think necessarily it constitutes a politics and it doesn't constitute politics for one of the reasons which we're, which we're already talking about that you have to understand sort of paradoxically. And this is like the stuff that comes up in someone like Nancy that like isolated, independent individuals are themselves a form of a kind of trans individual relation as well and that trans individuation can take on and this is why i think trans individuality is useful beyond a kind of intersubjectivity because it suggests a commonality which is not necessarily recognized in the sense that one could argue that 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 people across various different places in the political spectrum all have a politics that's framed in some sense from a sense of feeling like the conditions of their existence are very much threatened, like their lives are precarious. But how that is articulated, how that sense of precarity is articulated into a politics runs the gambit from from fascist reactionary versions of that and racist versions of it, very much like we're not going to be replaced, etc., etc., to other versions of it. So, so the, the common affect hmm. and the common sensibility does not translate into a common political position. And this is why I think you need to separate trans individuality as a way of understanding our shared constitution through capital, through everything that's going on, and 
and, and I'm not necessarily wedded. I mean, equilibrity is one articulation of a politics. You can talk about abolitionism, you can talk about communism, you can, but, but the, the becoming political of the shared condition is not itself a pure product of the shared condition because the shared condition has multiple and even antagonistic ways of being articulated and actualized. Yeah, um, that was something that I absolutely, absolutely loved. That what you were talking when you got you know specific about capitalism. One, I you know I love you know somewhere in the production of subjectivity. You talk about how Marx in the Grundrisse says what makes capitalism actually different than other modes of production is it doesn't really give a shit about the reproduction of particular forms of existence. It's just trying to muscle its way through. And so one way of critiquing capitalism, you might say, well, what does capitalism do? It devol- it dissolves our bonds of commonality. If only we could get back to when we were in small communities and everything was transparent, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're saying... Go back to the black boys. Yeah. (laughs) Look, I wasn't trying to name names, but we we all know who I'm thinking about. But capitalism is also a form trans-individuality can take because trans-individuality is an ontological argument. So there is a form of being together that capitalism offers. I think a lot of us are finding we don't like this form of being together. But, you know, the argument of trans individuality is not like a romantic argument of saying something like trans individuality equals good social formation. You describe capitalism as fetishizing trans individuality through processes of the market that can lead to experiences of loneliness. But the thing is, you're not lonely as if you're separated from everybody else. You're lonely in the midst of this particular political formation of mm. trans individuality. And so I guess the, the question I wanted, I wanted to ask is something along the lines of, so would the political critique be something like, it's not about getting back to our real trans-individuality. It's about making the argument of how we are going to be trans-individual with one another. And equal liberty is one concept you can use to say that if we're going to be together, if we're inescapably you know, um, going to be together, this is one form it can take. But you know, capitalism, clearly the way it reproduces itself, has other ideas of you know, the type of political f- formation it will take. So I thought that was like really interesting of you know, weaving the ontology and the politics, but not saying that they are collapsed in, into one. Did I, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I was just going to add to that, because I think, I, I think you're right, but I, I think that capital doesn't just, I mean, it's very easy to equate capital with the you know, isolated, competitive individuals. But I, I think it's important to, represent, to say that in this picture we're painting, and I guess we're painting a certain kind of like spontaneous ideology of capital, it also has its own understanding of, of, of collectivity, but its understanding of collectivity is through this brute force of this thing called the market, which acts on us, but we cannot in some way act on it in turn, right? It affects us, but we cannot affect it. It is a, a vision of, so like, I think that one constantly vacillates and you can see this in all sorts of ways, right? One vacillates in capital between, on the one hand, this belief in the individual is sort of all powerful, like, oh, you just need to figure out a way to like work your hustle. You're going to figure out a way to sort of master your own conditions, and you're just going to have to culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where the individual is seen as sort of all powerful, so it vacillates from that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it vacillates towards you just have to adapt. These are the market mm-hmm. conditions. You have to recognize that this is this is the world, and so it vacillates between an image of the individual as all-powerful and the image of, of sort of collectivity as sort of abstract, indifferent, and equally all-powerful. And to some extent, you know, uh, both of those have to be seen as a failure to, in some sense, like, make possible any kind of politics, because politics is not about the individual, nor is it about sort of just adapting to structures that d- dictate and demand how we live. It's about acting on and transforming the very relations that affect and transform us. Um, So my question was maybe a little sideways, but um, a few episodes ago when we did Lukács, I asked the the group to tell me what a contradiction, a social contradiction is. (laughs) And I feel that, um, I feel that they were very helpful, but maybe not as helpful as Jason could be. Um, <laughs> yeah, she got us, Owen. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. You guys did. You guys did great. Um, but I, I still find this idea of a social, you know, contradiction puzzling. And I think that the idea of a kind of antisocial sociality, I think, is how Will put it. There's 
a lot of the things that you're saying about trans individuality, it's, it seems to me like it's trying to break down our experience of, of contradiction under, under capitalism. And, um, I'm just wondering if that, if I, if this isn't too sideways, I'm wondering if that's, um, you've thought about that or if, if that rings any bells for anyone in the group, like that it just, it seemed like there's a kind of an ontological, a way of looking at things ontologically that is trying to demystify contradictions and say what it is about our conditions that makes it appear is contradictions. And so maybe what I'm really asking is like, if you take a trans individual perspective, is there ever really a contradiction or is contradiction o- only ever an appearance of how we experience mm-hmm. ourselves as individuals vis-a-vis society. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I mean, I do think that the way I'm thinking about trans individuality is a way to make sense of or articulate certain sense of of a contradiction in the sense that it as as we're just talking about it uh, recognizes that there's not so much the individual versus society, but but in the individuation that is thoroughly social and that what is opposed has to be seen as sort of existing in a contradictory unity of, of, of both. Um, and it also, in some sense, demands thinking in terms of what we often are given as sort of the sort of zenith of, of individuation, the idea that, you know, competition is how we realize our individuation, etc., um, you know, is actually itself a commonality that can't recognize its own commonality, right? Demanding that everyone act. I mean, that's one of the things I think is really interesting about Marx in general is that Marx basically says, look, you know, it's capital dictates that you act. I mean, having to do the same thing, having to be competitive is in some sense a collectively shared condition that cannot be recognized as a collectively shared condition. Mm. Um, so it is less individuated than it, than it takes itself to be and appears and appears mm. to be. I mean, I think there are some big questions you asked in your question that, I, that I'm, I'd have to think a lot more about, about what, what it means to think through a notion of contradiction, how dial, I mean, I've always, I mean, I constantly go back and forth. I mean, I think the only way to, for me to think philosophically is to constantly both think dialectically and anti-dialectic at the same time to constantly like struggle with that. And so I'm not really sure if I can work all that out right now, <laughs> but, uh, no, no pressure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. wanted to ask about that too, about how it is you see this project and like your notion of trans individuality is differentiating from a dialectical understanding of the relationship between individual and collective, right? Which is the kind of, originary problematic of the book, right? Because, you know, the dialectical notion mm-hmm. is that, you know, the individual exists through the through the collective, the collective exists through individuals, and that's what it means, to, you know, to place the dynamic relation rather than the relata as the determining, you know, as the determining force, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I see you doing something really similar. And I also see even, you know, there's one point, and I might not be remembering this totally correctly, where, um, you know, you're, You suggest that one of the things that like liberalism promises is like, you know, individual liberty and what it actually delivers is like constraint under like forms of commodified consumer existence and constraints under the competitive rules of the market. And so, you know, I, mean, so I see dialectical points being made mm-hmm. all, all over the place in this book. And I was just wondering, mm-hmm. I guess, where is the anti what's the anti dialectical? Um, I don't know the, the part of the, the, the anti dialectical thrust that you want to bring to bear on that on that thinking. If I could also piggyback real quick. And I swear I'm not going to ask another question. <laughs> I, I know that that's like really annoying. Um, but as Lillian was talking and then you were responding and I uh, grant, I am not a Spinoza scholar. So, you know, one question I might have, Oh fuck. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I would muse about is whether <laughs> there are real contradictions in Spinoza. And so the yeah. thought that I was having while Owen was talking is, you know, perhaps there aren't contradictions in the ontological formation of trans individuality, but there are contradictions in the the political um, stance or position you take of nominating something as a contradiction. And I guess part of the way I'm thinking about that is if capitalism is another form of trans individuality, then it's not quite a contradiction. It seems like it, it we nominate it as a contradiction in the political stance we take towards it. And I think that actually would mean that you are 
actually rather different than Lukács, where I think Lukács wants to say that, you know, the contradiction is like, you know, an ontological contradiction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was just like my musings, not another mm -hmm. question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the, the questions, I mean, for, to, to talk about the, the anti-dialectical, I mean, I think that on some level, Hegel's idea is, because Hegel too has a, has a very interesting critique of the sort of isolated individual of civil society in the philosophy of right. But he basically argues that the whole place of civil society is a kind of education of this individual, where it begins to recognize that it needs social relations in order to exist, right? It, it, it wants the commodities that it consumes to have been, like, checked for, like, you know, poison or whatever. It wants a kind of social structure for it to pursue its even its own individual self-interest. Because right? it comes out, it leaves the family, and it's like, screw that, screw connections. I'm individual self-interest. I'm going out in the world. And and it eventually becomes to learn, oh, there are things like uh, unemployment. There are things like being injured at work. You know, the, It basically learns a sort of version of some kind of need of a social network or social you know structure. And I think one of Marx's, you know, this is going back to Ballybar's line that I really love, that Ballybar says that, that Marx's entire project was an attempt to interrupt Hegel. And he says that if you read on this version, if you read commodity fetishism, it's an, it's, it's an point to say, as they say in Maine, you can't get there from here. You can't go from the isolated individual to a recognition of social relations in capitalism. Because what capitalism does is it constantly reifies and obscures those social relations in commodities. I mean, I mean, we saw this in our own recent history, the way in which people during, you know, especially the early stage of COVID were like, oh my God, I didn't really realize that like things at stores required people to be there <laughs> in order for them to exist. I never really made that connection. I just thought they were sort of miraculated on the spot. And now I recognize that people getting sick means that like I... And, and the fact that people are still Let's struggling. Let's put these empty shelves. Yeah people, are, <laughs> yeah, people are still struggling with this notion to some extent testifies to the Marxist position that like if Hegel was right, we all would have come through COVID and be like, oh my God, the universal. <laughs> yeah. We need the universal. <laughs> and we would have. But, we would have been educated into Marx's the universal, point, as he puts it. Yeah, but that. But that if Marx is right, then we all come through COVID still wondering why like planes are late That's and incredible. why, you know, stuff isn't showing up because in in capitalism, we experience our social relations through the commodity and do not see or recognize the necessary labor and necessary social relations that, that are behind them. So that's, to me, I mean, I realize this is thinking dialectically, not like, not as a sort of overarching philosophical perspective and thinking one instance of a dialectical transformation, but that's what I mean. Mm. In, I mean, recognizing and in some sense, I think, historicizing or problematizing that particular dialectical transformation does uh, have questions that sort of sort of roll downhill into the entire notion of a dialectical understanding of sociality is, I think, in my view, always predicated on recognition, which is why Hegel doesn't quite belong. I mean, Hegel, I think there are, there are trans individual moments in Hegel, but I think um, Hegel yeah, point to like the the eye that is a weed. Yeah. But Hegel, I think, is more a philosopher of intersubjectivity than a philosopher of transindividuality. Yeah, because of the emphasis on recognition yeah. as like the sort of guiding thematic or conceptual core that does the work of uniting or not refusing to treat as separate the individual and the communal, but in this highly attenuated form without recognizing the other dimensions. And, right? and he's yeah. also wedded to, for lack of a better word, what you call like the... I can't remember how you put it, but I'm going to say like the bad way of recognizing trans individuality, which is like the state or the community or something that actually ultimately oh. closes off. It liquidates the, uh, the trans individuality mm -hmm. in the other direction than individualism does. Right. It liquidates the uh, trans individuality in the direction of like a coherent and like homogeneous social totality. Right. Right. That it always represents the sort of the imminent relations through a transcendent instance. Yeah. And you differentiate that from like what at one point you call like activating the trans individual. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I was going to ask you if, if there was a chance that nobody wants to jump in exactly on that. If you could say a little bit more about. Um, and this, I guess, relates to my other question about the politics of trans individuality. Right. Um, you talk about, you know, um, activating 
the trans individual, uh, like philosophical anthropology that you lay out, you talk about, um, you use the word rendering it explicit, right? Like re it's always implicit there, right? Even the fully kind of commodified and marketized individuals that we are under capitalism still exist as trans individual, but it's a way of existing trans individually that as we just were talking about, we are so bad at rendering explicit. And so, I mean, I guess it would take like a, I guess we'd have to overthrow capitalism to make it explicit though, wouldn't we? I, I don't know. Like, you know, even now I'm thinking like, how the heck could we ever, what would the project of making it explicit look like? Without or we getting could rid just refine, remember being. Well, that's B-E-Y-N-G. Make sure yeah. we, as long we as could being just the be, verb. We could just be the mid sign. I don't know why you're making this so hard. As a verb, not a noun. <laughs> Write back, a poem. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, maybe that's that's not exactly yeah, a very specific set of questions. No, no, I think it's I think it's it's a, it's another way of thinking about. I mean, I do think the the Spinozist in me recognizes that we can never fully adequately grasp the causal conditions of our own it's a goddamn existence. imagination. We're always going to be stuck. <laughs> we're always going to be stuck, sort of imagining them in some way, shape, or form. Um, but there are. I would also argue, you know, better or worse imaginings and the the capitalist one, which is defined by isolated individual uh, on the one side and an impersonal force of socialization known as the market on the other is a particularly poor one because it leaves us unable, as as we repeatedly see, to confront and address uh, some fairly fundamental social, but also uh, uh, ecological and natural problems that confront us. So I would I would say that I do think that the I understand you know this is another sort of Balabarian element of me. I understand this the Spinoza's project to be one of a a constantly becoming. Uh, and that's going to sound very delusional, but a constantly trying to become more adequate and more understanding of our social relations, but it it necessarily is always going to be incomplete, and we're never going to entirely dispense with imagination. And I think that's a very tricky point to hold out politically, because I think once you say, say that we're always going to have this ideological dimension, it always either suggests on the one hand a kind of fatalism, like, oh, we're, we're screwed, right. or on the other hand, it suggests a kind of an instrumentalization of that imagination, like oh, we should be the people behind the scenes trying to construct the better um, the better imagination, and I think that both of those are are wrong. Like neither a fatalistic, like oh, we're kind of screwed, we're never going to get this right, or like the sense of like we need to become the sort of engineers of the imagination. I think both of those are are bad politics, but I'm not really sure. I mean. I think that the process of politics is a process by which, you know, people have always tried to come up with a figure or a name of a social relation that could be uh, adequately recognized, and they always end up as sort of being incomplete and then start it all over again, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, like, I liked what you were saying a moment ago, too, though, like the, the fact that there are... And it is, as you said, a totally Spinozist insight that, like, the fact of the kind of ineradicability of the imagination doesn't condemn us to being relativists about this, mm -hmm. that there's better and worse forms of imagination. And the criterion that you proposed is like a pragmatic one, right? Like, the, the forms of imagination that let us do more mm -hmm. or that let us resolve in a satisfying way these social or ecological kinds of problems, just to name the most obvious is a better form of imagination just by that very fact. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a, a helpful heuristic to avoid the slide into a kind of yeah relativism about inadequacy or something like this. Mm -hmm. And also this, this offers another really interesting, um, again, I'm, I'm going back to the critical theory part, critical posture towards capitalism, where one could critique capitalism because of its voraciousness, one could critique capitalism because of the social pathologies it seems to um, create. But what you're saying, and this causes me to become warmer and warmer to a type of spinicism every day, it's that you know, capitalism Join structurally <laughs> requires 
there's an inadequate apprehension of the conditions of one's life. And mm -hmm. so I think some, um, like, you know, some forms of political realism, I think that they'd absolutely jive with that. They'd say the, the, the problem is that social life or the economy has become a black box. Things mm -hmm. happen in there and then there are outputs and who knows. But, you know, I, I think that the political side of it is, you know, better and worse forms of imagination is it seems capitalism is a problem insofar as it structurally requires us to inadequately understand equilibrity. Mm -hmm. And that is like, you know, I think that that is an interesting and novel political component where it's not just arbitrarily we like equilibrity. It's juxtaposing what types of ideas does capitalism allow us to adequately have and, you know, what types of ideas does it, you know, does it cause us to inadequately conceive? And it seems under this, you know, constellation of social forces equality and liberty are always in the relationship of payoff or trade-off rather. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And so the political move is how can we more adequately understand that no, equilibrity is something to approach is you know, a, a, a novel way of more adequately, not completely mm -hmm. adequately, more adequately understand our um, institutional relations with one another. And I just, I like what you're saying. I just want to add one thing to it. I think that the, the real problem is that capitalism requires a, us to not be able to grasp our own sort of uh, conditions, but it does so in the very name of stripping bare the, our mm -hmm. entire conditions. It, it pretend it it's claimed to have no illusion, to have no attachments, as we were talking about a while ago. Like it has no attachments, any particular mode of life, right? It doesn't really care about uh, uh, particular you know norms and values. It only cares about producing more surplus value. I mean, this is something that, you know, is in Marx and, you know, the way that Marx talks about, like, the difference between between capitalism and something like feudalism is that feudalism, you know, needs this kind of misapprehension of social existence. But, uh, but capitalism, the misapprehension of social existence is built into what pretend, what purports to be. Yeah. A complete stripping bear, the the kind of I mean, this is a different version than what Marx says in the manifesto. And I think what Marx would say later when he starts talking about fetishism that, in some sense, the manifesto was wrong. We don't. It doesn't. Capitalism doesn't strip bear and force us to confront. Hey, the person on the other side of this is just a boss. It strips bear while simultaneously mystifying, and that is particularly pernicious, in the mm -hmm. sense that it it produces a kind of cynical. This everyone's just pursuing their own self-interest. This is what's happening. This is what's always has been happening, and in doing so, it it occludes the very social conditions that it necessarily produces. I mean, what's really crazy about this kind of problem of mystification, and I've I've recently become increasingly convinced of this that um, the through line between liberalism and like republicanism and even forms of like critical theory. Like a conceptual through line is that the economy is something that is like normatively and empirically distinct and mm -hmm. it needs to be, you know, depending on your, the persuasion of the, the theorists, like it needs to be constrained or let loose or settled nicely with others' fears. I mean, like whatever, but the thing that's amazing about the whole enterprise when it comes to talking about markets across the board is that like what people are fundamentally doing is like actually that the black box is like critical to the to the enterprise. Like if, if mm -hmm. you keep it closed, then we can do critique like we, we need to like put it in its place. And as long as we control it or constrain it analytically, conceptually, politically, whatever, then we can engage in in critical theory, and it's critical to do so. It's critical to keep it in its box. Um, mm -hmm. And I just find this amazing. Like it's like in I'm not sure what to make of it yet, but like in like normative political philosophy and social theory, I just think this is like the overwhelming tendency. So you can like the market, you can dislike the market, but ev what everyone agrees about is that the market has to have its sphere, its scope, its institutional constraints. And then going inside, like going inside the market is like, is usually not the move. And therefore, like we never really find out what's going on in there, which is kind of incredible. So then the way that we talk about domination is like things just happen, like that it is just going on and actually it's so diffuse and so on. 
Um, and, and I think that there's something really peculiar about, I'm just kind of supporting your point. There's something really ideologically peculiar about that consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that does it for us today. We'd like once again to thank Jason Reed for joining us. Uh, so Jason, would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you online or about anything you've got coming up? Sure. Um, well, I have a blog at unemployednegativity.com. Um, we can find occasional musings and writings. Um, uh, I have, well, this book just coming out. I'll have a book coming out from Verso next year about work called The Double Shift. So, uh, yeah. It's, uh, thanks a lot for having me. This has been, this has been like, fun. It's given me a lot to think about. And, um, yeah. yeah. That was great. Thanks so much. So much more fun. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank yeah, you for thank coming, you so much. It's great. Yeah. And we'll definitely link your blog in the episode notes. New episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Cynthia Pakakerka, M. Crow, Carl Stope, an anonymous ethicist, not a serial killer or anything, just asking questions, Katie Creel. <laughs> <laughs> v. Okay. Yeah, I don't know, whatever. V. Uh, Lu Lucas Slevin, Victor Williams, IGGRB, Connor Thomas, James Wallace Lee, Paula Mendoza, David Da Silva, Christian Olson Toft, Suavocado Jones, Rosencrantz, Carlos Reynosa, Zach Boffshaver, Andrew Hartwell, and Nope Nope. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Up to Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left to Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.